You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Welcome. Uh, good afternoon. It's uh, June 3rd, 2022. So this uh, edition of Offscript, which is American Theatre's live Facebook chat and podcast about all things theatrical. <clears throat> I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Rob Weiner Kent. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you not where my background is, as usual. I'm actually in the TCG offices in the, uh, the land of the Lenape in Manhattan. And I am, uh, but, the, but the background behind me is the Sprenger Theater in DC. And that's because our guest today, I'll talk to in a few minutes, is Benjamin Benet, playwright of In His, in His Hands, which opens in a couple weeks there. Uh, but first, I wanted to just talk a little bit about um, some of the coverage we've done over the past couple weeks, which is, which has been a lot. I'm a little bit tired out here. My Ali Pearson and I at American Theater um, have been working hard uh, to bring you the latest news and features about what's going on over the country. Uh, and I'll just take this moment just to to make the pitch. Please uh, support our work uh, by joining uh, TCG or just donating money. We rely on almost entirely on that to do to do the work we're doing including this podcast and and chat so I'll just I'll jump right in uh, with the, with the coverage of the things we've we've done since our last wonderful podcast with Alison Leiby and Justice Hare um, we did uh, some uh, profiles of playwrights um, uh, one of them you might have heard of uh, upstart named David Mamet uh, <laughs> we uh, we got a pitch from a writer in Omaha and uh, he, uh, who's, who's written a book about Alexander Payne. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really eager to, to, to have a piece about, about Mamet uh, after his recent comments about teachers and his politics in general. But Leo B- Big, Biga, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Leo Biga, the writer from Omaha, made a good case, and I think he turned in a good piece. Uh, it was certainly controversial that we gave him a piece at all right now, but he's got to play on Broadway, it's nominated for a Tony. I am of the opinion that his early plays are great um, and are part of the canon, and he can't be written off uh, entirely. But I don't think this piece settles whether he's uh, he's worth listening to anymore. It is an interesting piece. I think it's worth reading. It did create a lot of uh, controversy on social media. Um, in any case, check that out. I'm also happy to say that, uh, in addition to that, uh, sort of bookending the two the two week period. We have a wonderful profile just came out yesterday of Madri Shekhar, uh, Indian playwright, who uh, whose play uh, Queen is just ending this week at Long Wharf and is going to come to New York next week. She hasn't had a lot of off-Broadway productions, so we're really excited to see her work here. But she's had productions all over the country for the past seven years or so since In Love and Warcraft. Um, Deep Tran did a wonderful pr- uh, profile of her uh, in her inimitable deep style, going deep on her on no pun intended, on Madri's work, as well as on her views about theater. Uh, it's great. It, it was just, she's long overdue for, uh, for, the, for this kind of coverage in the magazine. Speaking of long overdue, we have talked about Lynn Nottage over the years, but there's a wonderful podcast interview with her uh, by Brian James Pollack in our subtext podcast. Um, Lynn is the kind of uh, writer who... I have written about her, talked to her many times, and yet I... She contains multitudes. I learned so many things I had never heard uh, uh, about 
uh, at least not directly, about her life and her her work. Uh, she, of course, is also nominated for a couple of Tonys for Clyde's and for MJ, which are both, well, Clyde's isn't running anymore, but for a while there she had three shows running. She had an opera of Intimate Apparel, Clyde's, and MJ on Broadway. Um, Let's see, we also covered a couple of festivals that are actually going on right now. One is the Global Forms Festival, Rattlestick uh, Playwrights Theater in uh, New York. Started this festival a couple of years ago during the pandemic to help immigrant artists uh, basically get work uh, to maintain their uh, O-1 visas. It's kind of transformed. Uh, the first year was totally online, and last year they, had, they were able to do some outdoor performances. And this year it's going to be actually in, in I think it's hybrid, um, you might, someone might correct me. I think it's, uh, but it's going to be, you know, in real life a festival going on right now. Of really, it started to sort of make work for immigrant artists uh, to stay in the U.S., but now it's kind of a celebration of international theater, which is wonderful to have another one of those. Speaking of another festival, there's a really interesting um, sort of offshoot of the Fusebox Festival that used to do new work in Austin. I think they still do. It still goes on in Austin. But an offshoot of that, Cara Mart Mart Martinez, who's the uh, organizer of that, has started a new festival called Live in America. It's in Bentonville, Arkansas. It's bringing together 300 artists from eight communities all over the country. Um, and it's founded, it's, it's, that, that, that uh, area is the home of the Walton family of Walmart fame, or inf infame, uh, infamy, I guess. Uh, in any case, they subsidize this, uh, this festival. And yet it sounds like a pretty radical uh, uh, non-capitalist I don't know, it, it, it sounds like a really interesting festival. Um, Alex Atez was, was covering that as as the pandemic kept pushing it back and now it's finally happening there in Arkansas. So definitely check that out. A um, Couple trend pieces really quickly. I'll try to race through this. Um, Howard Sherman wrote an interesting piece for us about uh, a trend that's not new, but it has a new sort of vigor to it uh, of playwrights uh, looking at 20th century classics um, and, and sort of recasting them, not quite in fan fiction mode, but looking at different angles. Uh, uh, so two of them are Arthur Miller plays. One is Kimberly Bell, Bellflower's John Proctor is the Villain, which looks at the Crucible from a quite, the title tells you a little bit about the angle. It's, it, it is actually set in a classroom, but then they also investigate the play. That was at the, I think that's still at the Studio Theater. Uh, it definitely was there, it might still be there. Um, uh, Eleanor Burgess is the wife of, wife of the salesman, which gives you some idea. That's looking at Linda Lohman, and uh, she points out the irony that Linda Lohman is the one who recites the line, attention must be paid in Arthur Miller's classic, and yet not much attention is paid to her. So um, she's sort of setting that right with her play. And then the other one was a fascinating play, but one of our, one of our contributors, Calendra Smith, who's based in um, Atlanta, she's also a playwright, and she wrote a play called Younger, which is yet another uh, spin-off of A Raisin in the Sun. This is sort of a prequel that looks at uh, uh, the younger family and Elena, the, the matriarch, before they move or as they move to Chicago. Um, I believe that's the case. Anyway, fascinating piece, very different uh, takes from all three playwrights on these different classics and what they, uh, what they have to say and what, what other things that can, can be said about them. Another trend piece uh, this week was Deaf Renaissance. Uh, 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 Ger Garrett Zwecher, Zercher, I don't know how to pronounce his last name actually. This is often happens when I'm just emailing with people. But he did a wonderful piece about how uh, 
It's actually a great time to be a deaf actor. There are a lot of roles for deaf actors, not just portraying deaf characters, but portraying all kinds of characters. The, the tour of To Kill a Mockingbird as following the lead of the Broadway production has a deaf actor playing, uh, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but the one, the abusive one. Um, uh, so not all the roles are, are you know, are, are saintly, uh, but there's a lot of them around the country. And also, so what, what, he, what he points out is that what would be great is for, for deaf artists to work backstage as writers and directors to, to tell their own stories um, and maybe not be the abusive character all the time. Um, in any case, he points to a couple examples of where that's already happening. A production of, uh, uh, in Chicago, at a musical theater production, I think it's Little Shop, where uh, the, the director is a, a, deaf, uh, a deaf actor who's directing and it's not about, the play's not about deafness, he's just a theater worker. Uh, like to see more of this. Like to see, uh, you often see a trend with folks who've been shut out or marginalized out of the American theater, where they first get to play their play parts, they first get to be seen on stage, and sort of trotted out as, uh, as, as, as in tokens in many cases, um, but they get a foothold and then uh, at, at some point they, they get to tell their own stories and, and then also uh, do work alongside everyone else in, in all different kinds of uh, different kinds of genres, so it's not always about their identity. So uh, it's an encouraging trend. It's a wonderful piece. Um, <laughs> a couple previews. I can just mention briefly a, a, pre a preview of, of uh, Sarah Silverman's uh, a musical, The Bedwetter, based on her memoir. I interviewed her years ago uh, when it was about to go up at the Atlantic, and then the pandemic came, and, it, and the pandemic claimed one of her, her co-writer, Adam Schlesinger, who died one of the first early COVID deaths of a, of a well-known person. Um, they soldiered on, got David Yazbek and other folks to help out. And uh, apparently it's a lot of fun. I haven't seen it yet, but it's, it's at The Atlantic now. Um, I just wrote a piece today previewing a new documentary about Joe Papp, um, who I had not really actively thought about for a while. I certainly take, I take his story for granted. He certainly underpins a lot of uh, regional nonprofit theater uh, what it's all about. Um, my examples I grew up with were more Cornerstone, Steppenwolf, the, those templates. But the public theater, uh, anyway, it was. I, it, I took the chance to sort of reflect on his legacy, what it means. It's a wonderful documentary on PBS that starts airing today. Um, I will close finally. <laughs> uh, our, our roundup of our exciting coverage of the past couple of weeks with uh, all the theater news. Bad news, the House Theater in Chicago closed after 21 years. Some great, exciting news. Patricia McGregor is the new artistic director at New York Theatre Workshop. She'll start in August. I had a great conversation with her. And then we had uh, musical chairs, or that's probably the wrong word for it, but a lot of expanding leadership, let's just say. People's Light hired a bunch of new associate artistic directors to work alongside Zach Berkman. Charleston Stage in South Carolina uh, has two, a whole new leadership structure. Virginia Rep um, also has a lead, uh, three artistic co-directors. So that, that's a trend that we're keeping an eye on, these sort of co-leadership uh, um, models, which again are not new in the American theater, but they seem to be newly relevant and, and getting a fresh, fresh look. Um, no easy way to segue, but that, that was our coverage. I, I hope you read, I hope you, you contribute and help keep us going. We're working really hard here. Um, and now we just get the pleasure of talking to Benjamin Benet, 
Uh, Benjamin, I think I saw your, your face. Benjamin, how are you? Hi there, I'm doing well, how are you? Not bad, not bad. Um, excited to talk to you. Your play, In His Hands, uh, starts at Mosaic on June 22nd, is that correct? Correct, yes. Is there, is there, are there previews there? Do they do a couple previews or just open? Code? Yeah, there'll be a few preview performances okay. leading up to that opening, yeah. Okay, okay, all right, a few previews. It's not like here though, They run where they run for weeks in previews. Yeah, no, not not quite the same process. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about this uh, this production uh, uh, and the play. I, I got a chance to read it. I did not realize how much my jam this play would be. Um, I'm I was raised Lutheran, uh, so I'll just lay the cards on the table. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'll, what I want to ask, I'll have you describe to me. Uh, what the play is about and who, who the characters are, Daniel and Christian. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think uh, in a nutshell, I described the play as a rom-com about gay Christians. Um, <laughs> I think the more complicated version of, of what's happening is that the play does center on two characters who were raised in very different Christian denominations. Mm -hmm. And when we find them uh, meeting each other in sort of a meet-cute uh, meet situation, um, they have very different relationships to spirituality and the play tracks their attraction to each other and a friendship that begins and that begins to uh, stray into more complicated territory like romance um, and the, the potential of a relationship. So that's, uh, that's in a nutshell what I would say about the play. Yeah, I, I think there's a note early on that says it plays like a, a rom-com. The, the pace of it should be like a rom-com. Yeah. And it definitely, re it definitely reads briskly. And then, of course, you also mentioned that there's a couple more naturalistic and sobering sections. And those tend to be, uh, I, don't think, I don't know if we, this is spoiler territory, but, you know, one of the characters went through a kind of gay conversion therapy. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and so th those are those aren't quite aren't quite as blithe those moments um, when we go back and, and talk about Christian's past. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own way into this because, as I mentioned, I was raised I was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, which is very conservative. Mm. But then when I was on my was on my own, I, I found the ELCA um, uh, before they were accepting and tolerant uh, officially. Although I had a lot of uh, gay uh, congregations at the church I went to in LA. But, uh, you know, I, yeah. Um, so, but I want to ask about your, what, how, how you come to this subject and what's, what's your, what are your priors on this? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was raised in a uh, fundamentalist, conservative Christian household. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think uh, having been raised in an environment where um, sexuality was really rigidly defined um, and not, uh, finding myself conforming to those, uh, <laughs> to the ideas that people had that were very black and white about sexuality. Um, I found myself leaving the church uh, when I was 20 years of age. Mm -hmm. um, and then in my late 20s, circling back to questions of faith, my relationship to God, um, curiosity around, uh, you know, religious affiliation, but more importantly, just a relationship to the divine and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And began having a lot of conversations with uh, queer friends um, about their relationships uh, to religion and to God. 
and uh, found that I was not alone in sort of this, mm. you kind of have to pick one or the other feeling. Um, okay. yeah. And, uh, but then I had a really good friend, uh, Kiki, who introduced me to Pastor Peter, um, who was of the Lutheran denomination and was an openly gay pastor who went through Yale Divinity. And my conversations with him about how he was able to find a sense of harmony um, within uh, you know, the religious community that he belonged to, uh, a sense of harmony between his sexuality and his faith um, within that community was uh, really expansive um, in, in terms of like, it expanded my, um, my understanding and certainly the interpretations of the Bible that I was taught um, as a young person. Um, so I found those conversations really valuable and, um, and, uh, they were certainly inspiring and influential in terms of the writing of this play. And I mean, the writing of the play really was about me asking questions about how do I find my way back to a sense of, uh, my relationship to the divine because I had felt so, um, removed from it for so long, um, in some ways, not by choice and others by choice. Um, and, uh, yeah, that search for a sense of relationship again, um was uh sort of the map i think i was creating for myself in the writing of this play yeah well, so it sounds like you're a little bit between the where the two characters are where daniel is a uh, literally trying to be ordained as a, as a lutheran minister while he works at a tech company mm -hmm. sort of in a sort of office management role yeah. and christian is a is a it's a very familiar narrative and i, I it was not my experience uh i had the, I had the good fortune of being a straight person at a conservative church and I could just sort of pat, find my own way to a liberal understanding and never felt judged. Uh, so I never felt that that break that a lot of my gay and queer friends have where they had to choose. They had to say, you know, you, God doesn't, this, this, you know, I, all, all, the, all that bullshit that, 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 that is, that is um, put upon, but it's, but it's real, it's, it's, it's real, it's a real pain. I do go to a church now in Brooklyn that's a nominally uh, Dutch Reform because that's what a lot of just happened to be a lot of ch uh, churches in Brooklyn. Um, but it's mostly like former Catholics or recovering people or people in recovery who found it because there's an AA meeting there. Um, and there's a lot of queer people there who are really, you know, trying to find their way back and their questions are that, it, you know, about the, the pain that the church, the church caused them in whatever, whether it was fundamentalist or Catholic, um, or Lutheran, you know, um, totally. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very live, live question for me. I wondered, uh, so I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I, I've asked this question of, uh, Sam Hunter and of, uh, Lucas Nath and, uh, Will Arbery, the other, the, the, the three players I, I could think of off the top of my head who write a lot about faith. I guess someone told me I should ask Amy Herzog about this as well. I love Amy. She's, She's one of my teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, oh. that, you know, but so I just wondered, you know, you've sort of tipped your hand that you are personally interested, but do you, so do you, are you a, do you have a faith practice now? Or do you have a, are you a member of a community? Are you based in LA mainly? Is that where you are now? Um, I was born and raised in LA, but I um, have been at Yale for the past four years working on my MFA. Okay. So I've been okay. in Connecticut, and I was in Minneapolis for two years before that, and Seattle for five years before that. Okay. So I've been sort of, uh, I think I heard Mia Chung use the term post-geographic <laughs> in the past, and I was like, oh, that's the perfect like <laughs> descriptor for how I feel um, about relationship to place these days. But um, 
Um, yeah, in terms of my faith currently, I, I still identify as a Christian. I feel like that's a part of me that's never necessarily going, going to go away. Um, I would say my relationship to God is very different than the way that I was taught it. And that's just been through a process of many years of unlearning. Um, and uh, and yeah, I have not belonged to any religious institution since I left the church that I was uh, born into. Um, uh now 14 years ago mm-hmm. um and don't know that i will but i don't i also don't think that i'll stop looking right right yeah i noticed the moment where you where you early in the play when when daniel first drops what he calls the c word <laughs> yeah. conversation he just mentions and i i have to say i i don't do you feel like i know kiara hudas has talked about this how she feels like this is not something people could talk about in the theater like that they that they believe in god or that and, you know, it is an advised thing when I just happen to mention that I, you know, my church, right? You know, is this something that you feel, I mean, not like there are, there are worse prejudices around again than the ones against people who are of faith, but uh, is that something you felt also in the theater? Do you feel like it's a it's a welcome place? Do you feel like there's a little bit like, oh, is this going to, you're going you to preach to me right now? What's going on? <laughs> and I think in some ways it can feel really taboo. Yeah. yeah. In, in sort of progressive circles, depending yeah. on a person's relationship to faith, for sure. Um, I think it's also just such complicated territory. I can speak for myself personally, being able to like describe exactly what my background is. I don't have great words for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not super cut and dry in terms of denomination that someone would readily, uh, you know, um, pick up on and be able to be like, oh, I know what that is. Right. Uh, and so it's a story that actually I haven't felt comfortable telling up until the past couple of years. I started to become a lot more open about my um, religious background and sort of where I'm landing with uh, in terms of my faith now. Um, but there were many years where it was a very, very private thing for me and something that I think I was just dealing with alone. Um, and therefore it felt really sensitive to have to open up about it. Um, regardless of what space I was in, theater or not theater. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but now it feels like something that I want to have more conversations about. And it's funny that you mentioned Amy Herzog because she actually um, taught a class while I was at Yale called uh, God in Contemporary Plays. Oh, wow. And so we read a bunch of, we, watched, we read Lucas Nath and we read uh, Case for the Existence of God by Sam Hunter. And uh, um and got to have a lot of conversations just about um, theology um, uh, and how it uh, how there are very few plays actually that that uh, address God, um, and uh, and that was surprising. Um, so I think that also gave me some more permission and some excitement around being able to explore my questions and my relationship to faith um, in play. Uh, and uh, in his hands was the first, and I've written one more since then. Um, during my time at Yale that is even closer, I would say, to my own personal experience with faith and my family. Um, So, yeah. uh, Yeah, it's definitely been ripe territory for me in terms of a writer lately. Well, that's great. That sounds good. It sounds like it's encouraging for for, for you to be able to write about something that's on your mind. Um, I I wondered just, you know, I also read Alma, which I've not had a chance to see your work yet, but uh, uh, and that one, if I was going to put lengthen, they're both they're both plays built around sort of a two person. I know, in his hands has other cast members really essential to the play that are part of it, but it's really built around a, a, a duo, uh, and Alma is literally a, a two hander. Um, 
And it does seem like both plays, again, I'm, I'm forcing them into, into a hole together, uh, they're sort of about complicated love between two people. One of them seems to be more faithful and one more skeptical, mm-hmm. right? And then finding some sort of, some sort of uh, uh, you know, relationship there and journey toward each other. Um, I also noticed that uh, both of them um, refer to a love for sort of a larger entity, uh, which might not be forgiving or love them back. In, in the case of, uh, in his hands, it's, it's the father, which is conflated in this terrible way with God because of the mm-hmm. way God is talked about as a he, yeah. old, old white guy with a beard or something, um, uh, which is, I, th- I think that's, that's at the heart of much of the damage that's been done. But, um, and in the case of, of Alma, it's the country. There's a speech that uh, I think uh, Alma gives later about her friend Mercedes talking about the reckoning with love for a larger, you know, with, a, with country, choosing the, and, the, and the feeling how good it could feel when you feel like you belong in the country. Um, I don't know if these are these are ways you've thought about your work in terms of, or notice these resonances in your work as well. I think it's beautiful the way that you've um, outlined those things because they are they do point at, at what I think are sort of the larger um, and most important aspects of my work that, that do create a thread through the body uh, of plays that I've written. Um, and I would say the first one, you know, you pointed out two-handers. I'm really interested in sort of the um, intimacy of relationship. And I feel like when it's two people or two person scenes, I've written a lot of as well, even if there is a larger cast, um, I just feel like I can get at the the heart of what the relationship is and that there is this space for a little more honesty um, in the intimacy of two. And, um, and also a sense of uh, realism within those relationships. It feels really important to me that there be a sense of naturalism in terms of the the dialogue and um, and uh, the characteristic of the relationship. Um, and I think that's important to me because I think even if the characters in terms of identity or background don't necessarily match up with the audience who's watching it, I feel like the detail of uh, a naturalism portrayed in relationship hopefully will allow people to begin to um, identify in some way or be able to begin to value the differences that they're seeing. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of like number intimacy is super important to me. I think in terms of like this larger context of like, does this bigger thing love me? Um, I'm really interested in the cosmic and the existential. So I love stories that start with the love between two people, but then expand into this wider notion of how do we fit? How does this relationship fit within the cosmos and the world, um, either historically or within a very specific moment? Um, and, And then I would say in terms of faith, that definitely has been a thread through my work, whether it's as abstract as something is just like hope. Um, my first uh, real playwriting mentor, Rebecca Torino Collinsworth, I remember a major value of hers was like, um, she was like, I, she was like, I love plays that end with some sense of hope. Hmm. Um, and something about that I identified so deeply with, and uh, I definitely held that value as one that I'm sort of like, even if the play ends in sort of an ambiguous state that doesn't promise a happy ending for the characters, there is the sense that something great is possible for them. And that feels like an important thing to um, to allow in my storytelling, for sure. Yeah, well, I think in both, in both cases also, uh, I didn't, we, we, I didn't, it's, explicitly named this before, but one reason why people don't want to talk about religion 
um, is a very good one that it's been so politicized, right? Uh, it's seen as it's seen, it's seen as the you know to, to my great chagrin as the province of a certain party and a certain uh, way of thinking. Um, you know, it's, it's fine, but that shouldn't be the exclusive their exclusive property. Um, uh, but I think also uh, Alma, which as you've talked about, it's, it's set right around the election of, of Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's dealing head on with anti-immigrant, uh, you know, uh, sentiment and reality in the country. Uh, do you, I, and you know, the, the uh, in his hands is not as explicitly political. I mean, it's not about, I mean, uh, it's not about any particular policy or administration, um, but I wonder in, in what sense uh, you feel like your work is responding to the moment in that way. Do you, do you feel called in general to respond to a current, uh, current urgent uh, moment? You know, I mean, I do in the way that like um, the political is personal. Um, I know it certainly is for me. Like immigration was such an important part of my family's story. Um, And while it may not align exactly with the story that I tell in Alma, um, stories like Alma's were things that I felt some sense of resonance and some sense of importance in being a part of that conversation um, because of my my, um, family's history. Uh, And similarly with a play like In His Hands where, you know, um, people's sexuality and as you talked about, their religious affiliations are also political. I felt a sense of the personal um, in terms of my connection to those things. And uh, and I think every story I tell has to begin with some kernel of the personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I find that in the writing of a play like Alma or In His Hands, um, removing it just one step away from my experience allows me to ask the question of like, what if? Mm-hmm. Um, what if things were just slightly differently for my family and their immigration story? We could have ended up in a, in a situation much more similar to Alma's. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that becomes a really important exercise, both in empathy, but also in imagination. Um, and it's, some, it's a journey that I hope that you know, people who engage with the stories, if they don't see themselves directly reflected in the story being told, they can at least have that sense of like, let me step into this, um, these pers- these people's experiences for a little a little while, um, by virtue of engaging with the play. Right. Yeah, I think you you mentioned naturalism earlier, uh, and I, that is definitely a register you write in. I think that uh, one of the notes about Alma was it called a poetic realism or poetic realistic? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's interesting. I feel like there's even more of that in in in, in his hands, uh, uh, poetic realism, uh, in the way that it moves through time and space. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? I, I know there's a little bit of a third rail to, to talk to with a Latinx writer and, and talk about magic realism. I know that <laughs> that's a, just a term that just you know it's a cliche. It's yeah. true. Of, it's true of many writers, but it's true of writers who aren't Latinx as well. So. I wondered about your embrace of that sort of a, a version of that poetic realism or if, if, if it's at all related to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's just like a, for me, it's just sort of a label that helps identify the genre. Right. And at least for me as like a young writer, 
I was sort of taught like poetic realism would be like Tennessee Williams, which like engages with realism, but does allow this heightened sense of language um, and even some elements that uh, of symbolism mm -hmm. um, and metaphor that like take us slightly outside of the realm of like naturalism. Um, so I certainly identify with uh, an affinity with that type of storytelling. Like I love being able to present characters that are very naturalistic in their depiction and in their relationship, but do place them in an environment where heightened things are allowed to happen. Symbols are allowed to enter. Um, time and uh, time and space can be a little more fluid. Mm -hmm. um, that is super exciting to me as a storyteller. I think the reason why I don't necessarily identify with the term magic real, like magic realism in terms of my work yeah. is I just don't, I'm not as well versed in the writers who I think are purely that. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say that my plays are anywhere in the vein of like Jose Rivera's, right? Like I, when I think of like something that I think of as like magic realism, I'm like, that is pure in terms of its um, relationship to magic realism. Right. Um, but I don't feel like my my plays engage with that level of absurdism and that mm. level of like um, the supernatural or surreal um, coexisting. Mm. Um, I would say they're like, there's this dash of that in my work, certainly. Like it's like peppered in there, but it's not uh, holistically integrated. So I don't feel comfortable calling my plays magic realism, really. Right. Um, yeah. I didn't. I want to make clear. I'm not. I'm not asking you. Me, white white person talking to Latinx. So you, you're a magic realist, right? Because you're that, that again. <laughs> I, just, I just was reminded of it because poetic realism again. Any modifier with realism that's sort of in a in a non naturalistic space invites the question. So apologies for the no. Oh no, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> As you were saying that, I was just you know engaging with that conversation because it is a common like question about yeah. like you know how do you differentiate those two things. So at least sure. for me, that's why I'm like hmm, I feel like I fall more towards this descriptor and not so much towards that one. I do know that, uh, you know, I was thinking that the TV that keeps going on in uh, Alma and they can't turn it off, keeps coming on with, with Trump talking at them and, or the politics intruding, reminded me a little bit of, of, of the, there's that weird generator sound in uh, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. I don't know if you know. Yes. Just like they don't know what it is and no one can really explain what it is. Everyone thinks it must be some what, you know, it's just, and so that's something where Will has talked about that as being like, that's just tracks with the sort of his family's sense of the the unreal that just kind of is part of life, you know, just like weird shit happens and you don't know why. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I remember, um, I remember seeing that play and it reminding me of that moment in Alma, yeah. where it's like, oh, I think, you know, Will and I are, I think are trying to accomplish something similar with that right. effect. I think, um, in Alma specifically, that felt like a real, um, for me, it was an almost sort of expressionistic gesture is how I describe it. Um, and in terms of, in that moment, we're able to almost sort of enter Alma's body and feel okay. what the um, what the television is invoking for her viscerally. Um, and so the you know the voice fills the entirety of the theater. The lights begin to do a gesture. Things start to feel almost a little manic in the way that I think when somebody is triggered is you know what is going on internally. Um, so for me, that gesture was definitely like expressionism in a similar way that um, uh, Christian and in his hands has these sort of dream sequences um, that allow him to play out the most like um, violent or vicious sort of ideation that has occurred. Um, in the mind, but we see it play out as if he's physically doing it to himself. Um, and again, that for me is like uh, the, the 
what I love about theater is that opportunity to take the internal and manifest it in physical dimensional space. And to me, that's expressionism. Right. Okay. I get that. Yeah. I wanted to ask specifically, I saw an amazing photo from the, the set of Alma, just the naturalism was just, you could just taste it and smell that set. I mean, was it, that was at the Douglas, right? In, in, in LA? Correct. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about, uh, in his hands, particularly since that's the play that's coming up about, you know, the production, what it will look like. I know there's some, there's some sequences uh, of Mario Kart. I don't know if we're going to see and hear a little bit about that. Of the two okay. of them, sort of bond over Mario Mario Kart. Um, uh, can you tell me a little about the production that, that Jose is directing? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think uh, the space itself is going to embrace the idea of the void. Um, in terms of the 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 play is really built to focus on the bodies on stage. And so much of the theatricality will be about what are the bodies doing. Mm -hmm. So I love that Jose's imagination allows for this choreographic sensibility where it will have like a dancerly quality to how the bodies are moving through space and how it's really movement that's gonna be allowing us to accomplish those shifts in terms of time and those uh, shifts in location as well. Um, and we also have some tricks manufactured into the, the set that are gonna allow some of the um, memory uh, components to manifest um, in space as well. Um, so that's super exciting. It's going to take place on a rake stage, um, and there will be uh, a lighting component to it that will allow for a gesture towards Mario Kart and what it feels like <laughs> to drive through Rainbow Road. Um, but yeah, I think a big part of like the the storytelling for a play like in his hands is I really do intend for the space to feel as empty as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so that like in the Bible where God's word created the world, the words of these characters creates the world for us. And they say, there's a, a record player right there. There's a vinyl collection next to it. Mm -hmm. Here's the Mario Kart uh, uh, console and here's the cartridge. And now we're inside the game. And so it really is the language of the actors that are creating that for us. But they will be, you know, supported with some uh, fun light and sound effects that will help lift uh, uh, that body language a bit. That sounds fun. I, 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 I are you a fan of Deer Hunter and uh, uh, Atlas Sound as well? I know. Sure I am. <laughs> yeah, but I think why I really uh, felt like that was the right match for this play is uh, Bradford Cox identifying as like this queer man from the South. Mm -hmm. So much uh, like religious uh, imagery and uh, references to iconography in his music. Mm -hmm. um, he has a song called Revival. Um, another one called Calvary Scars. Um, and certainly his relationship to his body um, in some ways, I think evoked this sense of like, um, uh, you know, relationships to scarring and sort of Jesus and what does it mean to be a martyr? And uh, I'm such an imagist collagist in terms of how I think of myself as a creator and as an artist and a writer that like when all of those images were playing around with the images that I was reading in Boy Erased with my own images from like my childhood and what I was taught about God and what church felt like, mm -hmm. um, I just had the right images playing with each other in such a delightful and exciting way. Um, that I was just like, this has to be part of the storytelling. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. I, I wonder, I just, uh, just for fun, what, 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 do you have a favorite video game that you play? 
I mean, it was Mario Kart. I like okay. actually wasn't allowed to play video games growing up. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So the only time I really got to was when I'd go over to like my fun aunt's house who had the like N64 console uh, and got to play Mario Kart. And then I had uh, my grandmother on my father's side before she passed had like, I think it was like a Super Nintendo that she was like a Ms. Pac-Man whiz and just had all the like courses memorized so she could just zip through all of them. And it was just like, kind of magical to watch her so for me like video games while i um am not a huge gamer personally have always just held a space of like magic and fantasy for me in a way that felt exciting to play with well yeah, especially if, if especially if you're not allowed to they, they have a special a special thrill right <laughs> totally yeah um illicit thrill i i um that one speech that christian has or, or the, the comment he makes is is sort of haunted me a little bit uh, where he says he can't really pay attention in a movie but he feels totally engaged when he's playing a game and I, I, I get that on a, just a character you know that that makes a certain sense but it's also kind of like is that where we're we're going <laughs> as a I watch my kids I don't really it's no judgment but I don't really play video games my kids it's just like that's the world they live in it's just like and uh, and you, you know again I don't again I'm not I don't have judgment about it. I wonder if that has a lesson for theater, if theater needs to be more interactive or something, I don't know. It just, that comment stuck out to me. Um, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think they're so different, right? Like, um, when I think about games, I think about, like, the delight of, and I know this word can feel loaded, but escapism. Yeah. Um, but I mean that in like in the way that we go on vacation, right? It's an opportunity to vacation in your own home. Like you can right. really just leave everything behind for a little bit. Yeah. Um, at least that's the way I think of gaming. Um, and then when I go to the theater, I at least personally as an audience member, I'm really looking for an experience to feel something. Yeah. Um, and and so I think those for me feel like different categories and I personally feel like I seek them out for different reasons. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and need both for balance, right? Like I I actually want theater to continue to feel like like an experience you can only have in right. the flesh, in space. And certainly as a creator I'm, and a play like in his hands, I'm thinking so much about like the gestural vocabulary in the play, right? Like so much of the play is about touch and just that physical okay. sensation of watching two bodies in live space holding each other um caressing each other and just like what that does to to my body as um somebody who's witnessing that is, right. is a very different sensation than like what i get from the thrill of like zipping through rainbow road on on Amer a mario Kart, <laughs> you know console. yeah there's a recurring image of, of holding i guess this is the title uh, holding someone's head in their hands right uh taking or taking some both for good and ill yes yeah um, uh, aims. Um, I uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, Hacienda Heights and um, uh -huh. you, where you grew up. And I, I I lived in LA for a long time, but I don't really know that area too well. I, I, the only my only connection to that area was that La Habra was the first place to open a Krispy Kreme in Southern California. So <laughs> I would made sure to make it there for the opening day. That was that was the kind of freak I was. But tell me a little bit about uh, about growing up there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's off the 60 Pomona freeway, so it feels like it's a place you kind of have to ri arrive at either intentionally or en route to like deep in Orange County. Okay, right. right. Is the way that I think about it. Um, uh, when I lived there, it was still a town, right? So it wasn't even a, a proper city. So it didn't even have its own representation. We were actually just part of the greater Los Angeles County. Um, 
and uh, yeah, I um, I mean, I think I lo- what I loved about it was it had a large Latinx population, um, and it was a really unique mixture of people uh, that I went to school with, that were my neighbors, um, in a way that I growing up assumed everybody sort of had until I started living other places and was like, wow, no, there's actually a lot of separation between people in other places. Um, So that really, I think, made me value the fact that like Hacienda Heights, lots of Latinx people, Spanish spoken very regularly. There was also like a lot of like strip malls that would be have signage exclusively in Chinese or Korean because those were other two large um, demographics in that community um and uh and you know i I think about like when we would go to some of those strip malls and like look for you know cuisine that was really unique to um uh to perhaps like latinx and asian cultures and sort of that overlap in a way that like if we went to you know albertson's or bonds or whatever supermarkets you couldn't find those ingredients um so that was really special i think engaging around like food was really big for me growing up and being able to taste like food from other cultures um just by virtue of like other students bringing lunches to school and just being like, you know, <laughs> sharing lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and certainly then again in theater, um, it felt like such a unique mixture of people telling stories together. And I mean, uh, most of it was coming from a white canon that was sort of like pressed on a lot of us who were Asian, Latinx. Um, so wait, how did how did theater? I was going to ask how how theater theater entered entered into that. Was there, did you have experience of that? Access to it? I did. Um, in high school is when I started picking up theater. So I went to Glennie Wilson, and we had a little black box theater. And um, I think what really drew me to it was I mean, storytelling is just always interesting for me. But I think the the more exciting part was that that was where like this mixture of students from all different backgrounds kind of came together to tell stories together. Right. And uh, and that just felt really special. Um, it felt uh, really unified mm-hmm. um, in a way that like going through honors classes or something could feel really competitive and like people were really divided from one another um, because of that competition. Um, So then going into a space like theater where it was no, it's like about us coming together to tell the story collectively, just felt a lot more harmonious and um, began to feel like a sacred space. And and you felt despite the the fact fact that it was like a white canon, probably musicals and plays that were, you know, standard Western American canon, uh, you still felt there was a, you felt like there was a place for you. Everyone was around you was was acting in those plays, I guess, and it wasn't like there was you were only playing the spear carrier, so to speak, right? Um, yeah, I mean that wasn't really an option because there you know were so few white students <laughs> that it was sort of like you couldn't yeah yeah cast it that way right um, and yeah I think colorblind casting was still like a big thing then so um, so yeah I think. Uh, it was exciting to have the freedom that like um, there wasn't the opportunity to get pigeonholed uh, a certain way um, within that context. So, you know, we did a, you know, we were, I think I mentioned you were talking about Arthur Miller and like the crucible was one of the plays we did. And, uh-huh. you know, the actor playing Abigail Williams was an Asian woman. Right. So, um, uh, so that was 
an exciting thing, I think. I mean, now I like don't really want to see the Crucible at all. Sure. I've sure. Seen it enough. Um, yeah. uh, so that doesn't sound exciting anymore. But I would say, like, <laughs> at that moment in time, that was an exciting thing to be able to be like, you know. Um, well, what was it? What was it that? What was the, the moment that that you said, "Oh, theater's for not just something I can do, but like I can actually do, like like maybe pursue as a as a as a career or a calling." Yeah. Um, well, I think when I went to college, I started to figure out that I definitely wanted to be in theater. I didn't know in what capacity yet. I still thought I was going to be an actor, maybe. Um, but I also loved directing, and that's what I ultimately ended up getting my degree in, was with an emphasis in directing. Um, but I think that question of, like, who gets to play what roles was coming up so much more prominently for me, because I went to undergrad in Orange County, where it was uh, primarily white. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, seeing a lot of my friends who were women and women of color who were super talented and not getting cast was just, like, tragic to me. Um, and that was the moment when I started writing, um, was just like, you know, I want, I want my friend Tiffany to be like, get a really meaty role that she deserves mm. to show what she can do as an actor. Cause I've seen it. Um, but you know, she keeps getting these like, you know, sideline character roles because she's a black woman. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so he started to just be like, I think I want to create some of those roles. Cause I certainly wasn't being taught them at that point in time. Um, that wasn't part of the canon that we were being introduced to uh, at my school at that moment. Um, and, you know, the only Latinx playwright that I knew at that moment in time was Jose Rivera because we did Sonnets for an Old Century because, it, you know, has a lot of monologues and you can cast whoever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't until I left there that I actually got introduced to the work of like Sarah Rule and Sarah Kane and Marie Irene Fornes and these other writers who really expanded what I thought a play could be. Okay. Um, and and that's when I got really excited about playwriting. And um, I uh, spent a few years trying to figure out how do I do this? Because I didn't have a, like any real mentors or like connections to the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly wasn't given that as part of my education. So, um, so I spent a lot of years just sort of being like, I don't know how to do this. Um, but eventually I just began reading a lot of playwright bios Okay. Um, and just looking at like, you know, where did they get their plays done? Where were their plays workshopped? Where they where were they getting developed? Playwrights like Sam Hunter, who like a decade ago was like still like an emerging writer, and sure. like I was just like, okay, who did Sam Hunter's plays back when mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. okay. when he was just beginning? And started to research some of those theater companies. Created this like uh, spreadsheet with all of these theater companies, what their new play programs were, if they like accepted open submissions, what the window was, all of that. And just began sending my work into the world. Um, and, uh, eventually began to get a little bit of traction, um, began taking it really seriously in 2013 when I met my mentor, Rebecca Torino Collinsworth, who was just like the person who was like, if you want to do this, um, you're talented enough to do it for sure. Um, but she's like, you need to be audacious too if it's really gonna happen for you. Cause she's like, there are a lot of not so talented people that make it and it's because they have a lot of audacity and are just really shameless about sharing their work. And she's like, you as a talented person need to be just as shameless and audacious and just put it out there. Wow. Um, and that changed everything for me. And within three years of hearing those words, I got my first major fellowship at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis in 2016 and 
started writing full time and that's been the trajectory since so um no, I, yeah, yeah I, I that that's a it i mean i don't know it's encouraging to hear that that that, that there's a that the path not was it wasn't easy necessarily but that there was a, a path that was you know you could forge through this <laughs> because i i definitely hear i hear definitely hear stories that aren't, aren't as encouraging and people bang their head against the wall you know a bit a bit yeah. business i i wondered you're under commission from south coast and seattle uh rep um uh, are those the next two plays that you have in the works or you have other ones? You mentioned another play about religion that you're working yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, coming out of, out of grad school, um, I have three plays that I had been working on during that time and his hands being one of them and the other religion play called and thou shalt be healed being one of the others. And then my thesis play Manning. Um, and then I, I finished a draft, my first draft of the Seattle Rep Commission play this past year. It's a play called Fantasma. Um, so that's been the most recent thing that I've completed. Um, but all four, no, with the exception of In His Hands, those other three plays were pieces that I had been working on in the past four years, just sort of like thinking about them and starting to figure out how to, um, how to tell the story as efficiently um, and as authentically as possible. And all three of them manifested finally in this last year. <laughs> so it's been a very busy, um, a busy time of like trying to figure out how to, how to write the best version of the play. And I think that was a lot of my grad school journey was a lot of like writing really bad versions of plays just by virtue of trying on different techniques as a writer, trying different processes as a writer and trying to find my way back to like what felt um, the most productive for me. And uh, and then I was really grateful that in this last year, these like three plays finally, just like one right after the other, just like, there it is, there it is, there it is. And I'm like thrilled with all three of them. Um, and I feel like they are the best examples of writing that I've produced um, at this point of time and feel like they really live up to my ability as a writer right right now, which is awesome because, you know, plays like Alma and In His Hands, as much as they are important pieces to me, um, they feel like the work and the imagination of a younger writer. Um, and I, you know, feel a little more removed from those pieces. So we do have a question from Facebook that seems to follow up on something you just you just talked about. And I think sure. I think you, you might have answered it essentially, but it, I know that you, your, your, um, we refer to as almost ten years ten years ago that you were looking at looking for those uh, opportunities. Someone asks, are, are any tips on where to start looking for theaters who accept open submissions? Um, and in your case, you said you 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 researched the you know bios of players and interviews with them about what they did and looked at their careers. Would it be similar advice now to look at where you're being produced and where you were first produced and all that? I yeah. think that is a, a helpful starting point, right? Yeah. It'll yeah. give you a sense of like who's doing it right right now, which you know, 10 years ago when I started, the places are different, right? Like the Lark is no longer there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I would say like, um, I would say open submissions are one route to go. I think they are useful in getting your work out into the world and you never know who's going to read your play that way and how they might be able to advocate for you down the line like that was sort of a wonderful thing that happens later um that i learned of was like someone was like i read a play of yours five six years ago mm. on a panel for this thing and was like advocating for you even though i like maybe didn't get the thing right so i would say like definitely researching open submissions is like important i 
learned not to put all my eggs into that basket at some point because it is such an anomaly that somebody actually comes up through the theater ranks that way it just is so unusual but i honestly just didn't have any other resources available to me i did not have a new york playwright mentor at that point in time who was like let me connect you with you know xyz theaters i just did not have that access right Um, right. the only way i could find my way in was you know at that moment in time was through open submissions but i would say the places to look at are certainly the playwright center um that's Mm -hmm. the big one that place changed my life and the people there are so wonderful and if you subscribe to them they do have a running list of like all places that are accepting submissions at any given time so you can just sort of look at their newsletter Mm -hmm. and see who's accepting submissions and what the window is and um, i would say that's just like a great starting source to go to um other places i mean i've applied to the o'neill for many many years um and continue to i did get selected once but that was like I don't know how that happened you know because I know people who submit to that for forever um uh but I would say that is like a worthwhile place to like submit to because if you do get the opportunity to be in residence in Waterford Connecticut it is beautiful and uh I got to spend the summer with um Celine Song and Jeremy O'Harris and um Michael R. Jackson so you know get to meet some cool (laughs) really interesting artists um, by being able to be in residence, uh, at a place like that. Um, but yeah, I can't say enough good things about the Playwright Center. I I think that's like a great source. That's really helpful. I appreciate that. Um, well, I think we're getting close to the end here. I want to just ask you, uh, sort of a big question about, you know, you're fairly, even though it's been 10 years, you're fairly early in your career of, of being seen, you know, plays being seen. Um, what are your, what, how would you sum up your ambitions right now? Just to get to get in his hands up, obviously, and get as many people to see it and finish these commissions. But what? Sure. What? What, do you, what are your ambitions maybe for the next ten years? If you can sum them up, Ben Benjamin. <laughs> yeah. Um. I would love to just being able. I would. Uh. Sorry, I'm getting a little, <laughs> a little emotional. Um. Yeah. yeah. I would love to just continue to be able to make plays. If I can just continue to get the support that I need to just keep making plays for the next 10 years, I would just love to keep making live theater. Um, And I guess the reason why uh, I emphasize that is because I just know that a lot of artists in order to survive have like moved to TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly that is something that like I get asked about a lot. And um, I'm happiest when I'm in a rehearsal room working on a piece of theater with collaborators that I love. That is like the bright spot of my day um, when I get to do that. So if I can just continue to do that and be able to make ends meet um, in terms of uh, what I need to survive and and keep doing that as my you know priority, that is what I would love to just keep doing. How you know however that happens, um, I don't have any specific ambition in terms of like. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah, right. tell us your five-year plan for your plays. But no, just having, ha- having a plan to, like, keep the commissions and the, I mean, I think that's what Sam Sam has done to a large extent. I know he's done some TV, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, it's possible. It's like, you know, uh, I, I know it's not something that happens for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is something I'm hyper aware of. And, uh, and that's why I think it is just sort of, in my mind, ambitious that I'm sort of like, if I can just keep doing this. Uh, that would be such a gift, but I have to say that like, you know, I'm super grateful and I feel very blessed to even have been able to do it for as many years as I've done it up until this, you know, up until this point, And that for at least one more year, I have the support that I need to keep doing it. 
So. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, and if that doesn't work out, you can maybe design a video game or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right well benjamin it's really wonderful to talk to you i wish you all the best i don't know if you say break a leg to playwrights but uh i'll take it break a leg within his hands Thank um that, that sounds like a mixed metaphor there <laughs> break, a, break a hand uh at, at mosaic uh that'll be up in a couple weeks there if you're in dc check it out um and obviously look for benjamin's work on stages everywhere um in the coming years benjamin it's great to talk to you uh and wonderful to uh, to be with you all today. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks so much to Mosaic. I love you folks so much. All right.